Hello, UCLA Law Review Dialectic listeners. I'm Nicole Powell, Senior Dialectic Editor, honored today to be interviewing two esteemed guests, Paige Jokey and Professor Talia Gonzalez. Today, I'm talking to my guests about their work on Beyond the Schoolhouse Doors, Anti-Black Racism and the Exclusion of Black Caregivers. This work calls upon the civil rights and education justice communities to expand their vision of school discipline law and policy reform to include the often ignored yet deeply impacted lives of parents, caregivers, and families. Deploying what critical race theorists define as storytelling or counter-narratives, the authors share Nyla's story to bring forward an all-too-common deployment of education laws, flown under a banner of safety, order, maintenance, and well-being of school communities that serve to reinforce anti-Black racism. A brief introduction of our host. Paige Jokey is a staff attorney at the Education Law Center where she represents students, conducts trainings, and advocates to address the individual and systemic educational barriers facing students in Pennsylvania. She is responsible for leading the Education Law Center's Black Girls Education Justice Initiatives. Paige joined ELC staff in 2017 as an Independence Foundation Public Interest Law Fellow, with a focus on eliminating individual and systemic barriers to quality education for students experiencing homelessness in the Philadelphia region. Highlights of her two-year fellowship include drafting an amicus brief in GSV Rose Tree Media School District, resulting in the first appellate court ruling on the application of the federal McKinney-Vento Act in an educational context, and a successful motion to make that ruling precedential, as well as multiple cases brought on behalf of students experiencing homelessness. Paige also provided more than 30 Know Your Rights legal trainings and clinics for hundreds of students, parents, providers, and organizations serving students experiencing homelessness. Originally from Boise, Idaho, Paige completed her undergraduate studies with honors at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. In 2014, Paige was selected as an NAACP LDF Earl Warren Fellow and a Temple University Beasley School of Law Reuben Presser Social Justice Fellow. During her time at Temple Law, Paige participated in clinical internships through the Scheller Center for Social Justice and worked at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Paige interned and externed with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund where she was selected for the Honorable Lewis H. Pollock Memorial Scholarship. She also served as a student mentor for the Black Law Student Association and Reuben Presser Fellowship. Upon graduation in 2017, Paige was inducted into the Reuben Presser Public Interest Honor Society. She also received the Beth Cross Award for her notable contributions to public service at Temple and devotion to pursuing a legal career in social justice. Paige is the proud inaugural winner of the Temple Law Students Public Interest Network's 2022 Public Interest Impact Award for her impactful legal advocacy. Our other guest is Professor Talia Gonzalez, a professor of law who holds a Harry and Lillian Hastings Research Chair. Professor Gonzalez writes and teaches in the areas of restorative justice, race and the law, critical race theory, health justice and public health, education law and policy, human rights, norm theory, juvenile justice, and community legal practice. She's a nationally recognized socio-legal scholar whose applied research and collaborative community partnerships aim to intervene in public systems to challenge the legal, political, social, and economic drivers of racial and gender disparities. In recognition of her work, Professor Gonzalez has been selected as a 2022 through 2024 Restorative Justice Research Community Research Fellow, supported by the U.S. Department of Justice Bureau of Justice Assistance, and is the recipient of the 2022 National Association of Community and Restorative Justice Research Award. Professor Gonzalez's research has been supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Grantmakers for Girls of Color, Annie E. Casey Foundation, and Atlantic Philanthropies. She is an expert reviewer for federal agencies, national foundations, and numerous high-impact journals, and served as a consultant for the National Institute of Justice. 
Professor Gonzalez's work has been published or is forthcoming in American Law Review, Wisconsin Law Review, Utah Law Review, Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, Fordham Urban Law Journal, the UCLA Law Review Discourse, along with several other academic journals. In addition to leading academic journals, her work appears in the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the New York Times, and she is cited extensively in the field. She is the co-author of Girlhood Inter Interrupted, The Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood, the groundbreaking study of the adultification of Black girls. Professor Gonzalez is co-chair of the ABA Criminal Justice Section Alternative Dispute Resolution and Restorative Justice Committee and serves on the design and research teams for the San Francisco Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission. She's a senior scholar in the UCSF, UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science and Health Policy, and an affiliated faculty member with the Center on Racial and Economic Justice, Center on Race, Immigration, Citizenship and Equality, and Center for Social Justice. I have to hold my breath because both these guests, their accomplishments are so long that it is hard to read all this, but I'm so grateful that they're here with us. So continuing on, Professor Gonzalez also holds an appointment as a senior scholar in the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Georgetown University Law Center and was previously a scholar in residence at Berkeley Law and the UCLA School of Law. Prior to joining the faculty at UC Hastings, Professor Gonzalez was the Madeline N. McKinney Professor of Politics at Occidental College and taught at the University of Denver, Sturm College of Law. Thank you so much to these guests for joining us, and thank you to our listeners for also joining us, and let's jump into our conversation. Hello, Dialectic listeners. Today, we're honored to be joined by Paige Jokey and Professor Talia Gonzalez to discuss their work, Discipline Beyond the Schoolhouse Doors. So as a means of introducing your work and yourselves, could you both describe what brings you to this work? Hi, Nicole. Thank you for having us. This is Paige, and I'm happy to talk about a little bit about what brings me to this work. So I identify first as a Black woman, so I have experience as a Black girl in school, and it is very important to me that the communities of which I'm a part are receiving a high-quality education and have every opportunity to meaningfully and fully engage and interact with schools that are affirming to them and help them thrive. And I see in my practice that this is not the reality that we live in. And I feel very strongly that it needs to be challenged. And so in particular, thinking about parental exclusion letters, this is something that I see quite often that has been invisibilized and a key area where Black female caregivers are being prevented from ensuring that the children for whom they're caring for have access to the type of education that they're illegally entitled to and very much deserve. Hi, this is Talia. Thank you for having us. So I identify um, as an Afro-Puerto Rican woman, and I say that um, because it actually is about the response to this question as well. You know, as we think about anti-Black racism, both locally here in the United States, but globally, um, an impact that it's had in creating marginality and exclusion, Latinidad, right? And sort of how we think about the Black diaspora um, has been so critical in that there's been such a erasure of what anti-Black racism is within a larger context, especially in the U.S., between Black-Brown dynamics, right? To sort of use that more colloquially. And so I think it's really important that when we're talking about anti-Black racism, we're one, elevating, right? It as its own operant form um, 
of hierarchy, right? Um, and then the ways in which it is landing disproportionately on African-American bodies within a larger Black diaspora, but the complicity that can exist within the context of remedying it. So the complicity within other communities in really trying to associate with whiteness and white hierarchy, um, really to the detriment of ensuring what we might think about is moving past a white dominance, right? A white supremacy. And so what does that mean then on a pragmatic level around school pushout? I've spent the last two and a half decades focused on policing in schools, pushout in schools, and with really close and careful attention to students with intersectional identities, such as myself and Paige and others, because of personal experiences that we've all had. And I think my reflection over that time is that young people move to the forefront of that discussion, and in many ways, rightfully so, as we think about education, but it also means that we often are losing then the wisdom and expertise, but also the potential for cross-collaboration with, quote, adults, right? And, and it also means that parents and caregivers who themselves often experience the same forms of push-out, the same forms of policing, are no longer central to the conversation also as solutionaries. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it's really about invoking a broader understanding about what it means to punish and police through education laws. And that it's not just about young people, it's about their parents and caregivers as well. And so within a movement, we have to be attentive to that. Thank you both so much for sharing your personal experiences and how and why that brings you to the work and how it impacts the work that you're doing. That's really helpful. And I feel like oftentimes you don't get that personal narrative of what drives attorneys, what drives advocates to do the type of work they're doing. So it's actually really helpful and interesting that you're both personally impacted by this, this issue. So let's talk a little bit about the current school climate regarding policing, surveillance, and control of Black women, as we've already mentioned earlier in this interview. So could you touch on what parental exclusion letters are and what inform, informal verbal compliment is and how both might function as an instrument of anti-Black racism and a driver of school push out for students and for caregivers? Yeah, absolutely. I can start there. So I think, as Talia mentioned, you cannot confront and address anti-Black racism at school if it is happening to students and it is happening to caregivers and it is happening in particular to Black girls and to Black women. And so what parental exclusion letters are is they are a formal notice issued by a school district or school entity that describes that a parent's conduct has, or caregiver's conduct is the language we use, has violated some provision of their code of conduct, usually not very well defined at all, which invites rampant discrimination, like racism and gender bias, words like threatening or dangerous behavior, words you might see on the notice. And then it describes that the caregiver is not permitted to come to school without a prearranged appointment. And oftentimes that also includes the threat that if a caregiver does so, they will receive a police response. Oftentimes there is no notice of how to appeal or challenge this exclusion letter on the notice itself. And sometimes there isn't a time limit. So there seems to be an infinite time that a parent cannot come or a caregiver cannot come to school. And what we see in practice at Education Law Center is sometimes things as simple as a raised voice 
result in a characterization as a dangerous threat. And so you'll get one of these exclusion letters. And then the caregiver will be functionally or actually prevented from actually scheduling set appointments. So then it becomes impossible for that person to advocate on behalf of the child with whom they're taking care without legal representation. And in terms of the second part of the question about the verbal informal compliment, sometimes these notices are spoken. So it is not a written document that you can physically show to the school and challenge. You get a phone call that says what you did was unsafe or threatening. Sometimes the language that is used is racist and racialized in and of itself. And then the caregiver is informed that they can no longer come to the school without a prior appointment. So those are the ways we see them operating. And maybe Talia, I could turn to you about school climate or lack thereof. <laughs> Thanks Paige. So, and, and I think part of that question around climate is like, how are these instrumentalities of anti-Black racism, right? Like how do they drive school push out, not just for students, but also for caregivers. And I think that part of that answer is the ways in which they're being deployed, but also who they're being deployed against. And so there might be instances, as Paige is, is noting, where it's racialized language, but the vast majority aren't, right? And that's the danger, one, but also that's the signal that this is really about racism and a particular pernicious form of anti-Black racism as it intersects with identity, right? So the ways in which Black women and girls are stereotyped coming not out of just a history of chattel slavery in, in this country, but really then permeating and being reinforced by law consistently, that, that marginalization, that form of oppression, that's when and where it becomes push out. So, you know, it could be as clear as seeing it in the words itself, but it's also just as clear as the disparate outcome, right? And so that, you know, by and large, the way in which, you know, someone raising their voice, the way in which someone steps forward, the fact that so, that a Black mother or caregiver is just there is disruptive to the school context, to the school climate, to the school environment, and that how dare she, right? I mean, that's the underlying issue and the way and the response is being deployed. How dare she have the audacity to step forward, right? And advocate on behalf of her child. And that was so important, I think, for us in sharing the story that we did, because it was that mere act of stepping forward and doing what we all want to do, um, and really, I think being throwing caution to the wind, knowing that this is what exists in the school climate, that there is an unwelcomeness, dare I say, in some places, hatred and very open unwelcomeness in that context. And so all of that is the climate that exists. It's an unwelcome climate for Black students broadly right across this country, but it's even more so an unwelcome environment for Black girls. And they've been so overlooked in what it means to then think about advocacy, right? And what it means to think about on the ground practice. It's 2022 and we're still having conversations about the fact that data is showing there's an increase of black girls moving through the school to prison pipeline, that they are directly impacted by suspensions and expulsions as if this is novelty. It is not novelty, right? It is part of a whole pattern of an exclusion of Black femininity and a deep fear of Black femininity that is rooted against what white femininity is. And so it's 
it's a process of push out because it's both performatively saying you are not welcome here implicitly and explicitly, but then creating a set of legal barriers by which a certain bodies are not allowed to be there. Um, and there's that constant complementarity between what are students experiencing and what are caregivers experiencing. And they just look the same, but they operate under different laws. And last time Paige and I looked, there isn't a law that's or a proposed law or policy that's looking to get rid of parental exclusion notices in the same way that there's been a robust movement around exclusionary school discipline. Right. Whether that's effective or not, that's a whole separate conversation. But there are national campaigns around school discipline. There's national campaigns around school policing. And it's all centered on young people. Again, rightfully so, but to the detriment of who is that family, who is that caregiving unit around those young people, and have those been identical or at least similar experiences within the trajectory of that parent or caregiver's life. Thank you both for sharing that. Um, is there any progress or could you describe more some of the resistance towards the parental exclusion letters? You say it's kind of a topic that hasn't really been centered within educational justice discourse or within educational justice advocacy. Could you describe a little bit more about some of the resistance, some of the work that you've seen or that you've taken part in around changing parental exclusion letters or getting rid of them altogether? I can start us off here. So I think one of the barriers is that there's broad legal authority for schools to regulate their internal conditions and preserve what is considered to be safety and order. And I think even those two words are loaded and racialized. And so what we see in practice is that there are many different ways that these exclusion letters arise in Pennsylvania and in other places. And oftentimes it's very important to sort of look backwards to what happened before this notice was issued. So what I see in practice often is that there is a civil rights violation going on in the school. Maybe a student is being bullied or harassed. Maybe they are being deprived of necessary special education supports. Maybe they are being harmed or assaulted by a staff. And so that is the reason why the caregiver is there. And they are there because other methods of bringing this very urgent issue to the school's attention have failed or have resulted in retaliation against the student or the caregiver. And so that is why they're there. And so by the time somebody physically presents at a school, the situation is already one where the school is primed in many cases to have a very adversarial response. And so I can tell you in my experience, speaking to groups of parents, presenting on this topic, it is something that causes deep community pain. I can't describe to you how many rooms I've been in where I talk about exclusion letters and black caregivers are nodding and it has happened to them and their hands have gone up or how many parents I've spoken to who are telling me about a situation at school and I know where that situation is leading. In fact, this is so common that now we ask screening questions about whether or not somebody has been excluded from school based on the factual situation that's being disclosed. And so our piece is initial, an initial intervention here about thinking about this more broadly, about considering the ways that anti-Black racism and the ways that laws discipline, punish, and exclude need to be expanded to look at the caregiver impact and the impact on community. But there is so much more that we must do to fully address these barriers. And 
It is also difficult because codes of conduct change every year. I know we highlighted in this piece, the school district of Philadelphia, because it's the eighth largest in the nation and also the largest in Pennsylvania. And unfortunately, their code of conduct for this school year, so 2022-2023, actually removes the important language that we noted in our piece about issuing warning letters. It does not define what threatening behavior would be, and there is not any requirement for schools to tell parents on the face of a notice or a caregiver that they can be appealed. And so this is something that will require our attention and consistently so until this practice has been eliminated. And we're committed to doing that. I think what I would add as a joinder to that is a couple things. One, within a broader civil rights and education justice movement, um, as lawyers um, or as future lawyers, thinking of yourself, Nicole, um, we're trained not to think about the larger family unit, right? We think about isolating in a particular, whether it's Brown or Brown's progeny or, or you know, how we want to, whatever we want to point to in law, it's about the students themselves. It's about the young people. And that's parallel in the criminal legal context, right? So when we think about juveniles, we have a juvenile justice system. We disaggregate them. We talk about the need, you know, to support them in different ways than who adults are. So, you know, within all of these public systems, we artificially create uh, a set of barriers generally to understanding young people's experiences within family. Um, we work really hard actually to break apart family as you know, Professor Dorothy Roberts out of UPenn is consistently and regularly pointing apart in her new book, Torn Apart. So I think we have that, right? Like we don't see young people as part of a larger community. And we definitely don't want to think about um, and I say this from a societal standpoint, the ways in which Black thriving is necessary from a community standpoint, right? Black survival has not been about an isolated individual. It's about a way in which individuals can constantly be there with each other because of the perniciousness of anti-Black racism, because of, of the like deep harm and fear for just personal safety, right? Going back to Paige's language about safety and control. So I think it's all of that, right? It's that we have, you know, we're trained as lawyers to think about cases and causes of action in a particular way. We think about young people disaggregated from their caregivers and parents. And that somehow once we eat, reach this age of, of maturation, whatever that might be, but how it's legally constructed, right? In terms of being adults, we sort of disregard the possibilities um, of who they are and their flourishing and how their flourishing is intimately tied to the flourishing of the young people that they are around, right? And we just ultimately haven't had movements that were willing to make visible this invisible moment, right? And that parental exclusion letters are invisible within a larger context of policing and punishment and education law. And that makes sense because there are so many education laws and they're unique and different in jurisdictions. And then the on the ground practices, the like local conditions of control and climate and experience and marginalization is just like another layer to try to unpack. So yes, when you put black parents and caregivers in a room, you're gonna get those head nods, but how often do we sit down and ask for the expertise and wisdom from Black parents and caregivers about how our schools should exist. We don't do that as 
a way in which education law is written formally, but we don't do that in terms of like constructing our school communities in a thoughtful and a deliberate way around Black flourishing, right? So it's all of that sort of put together. And I guess I would lastly say is, is just also that organizations are forced to articulate and work in certain mission-driven domains. So an organization that's focusing on organizing young people around the school to prison pipeline, you know, on a pragmatic level is not going to have a funder who's going to give them resources to say, let's then now think about this for parents and caregivers. In fact, there's a real sort of delineation between what is youth organizing, what is youth-centered work, and what is parent organizing, what is parent-centered work. Um, and that, that so often those don't come together um, because of the constructs around access to resources and the totality of what a larger nonprofit industrial complex looks like. Your point on Black flourishing really resonates with me because yeah, people don't exist or flourish in isolation or apart from communities. They need communities to flourish. And yes, as a law student um, in this field, you see that things are so stringent and categorical that there's not really any space for acknowledging alternative or multiple forms of family structures or caregivers versus parent legal parents. Um, so definitely, I, I that really resonates with me. Um, and it's it's really disappointing and disturbing, as you've already said, just that it's not merely a web of policing or surveillance of the individual student, but punishment directed towards their community and their caregivers, a, a larger network of punishment. So um, Discipline Outside uses a narrative of Nyla, a Black mother and caregiver, to advocate for an anti-racist education justice, particularly around race, gender, and ability. Why was it important for you to center Nyla's story? And also, why was it important to rely on narrative um, as a central piece of your advocacy? So I'll be really brief because I actually, you know, I think Nyla's story is what's central to this. I don't know if ultimately, you know, all of, of the audience will have read it, but I really do encourage them to, to read the story if there's a way in which we want to maybe bring her words even into this podcast. But the bottom line is we have to look to the expertise and the wisdom of people who are impacted, right? And then I'll make that even more specific. If we don't center the experiences of Black women and Black girls, then we have lost something in what it means to do education justice work. Um, and so there's simply no excuse for not having Nyla's story be at the center of what our piece is. And what I would argue so much of what our work is in education justice. Um, and so it's not just a reliance on a narrative as a form of advocacy, it's an inclusion of a voice that has been excluded. And, and I don't just mean her voice, but I mean writ large. So it's, it's a deeply political moment to say we can no longer ignore, and we as advocates and academics will not be complicit in what that looks like. Absolutely, and her voice matters. It needs to be centered. It was, she was physically removed. And I think that that is what we do when we ignore those who are most proximately impacted. It eliminates the ability to create true, holistic, just solutions. It silences the people whose lived realities are impacted by these forces. And in these words, I think particularly when you think about parental or caregiver advocacy, 
it is their words that are removed. They are no longer permitted to be part of a discussion that is regulated. It is mediated through a lens of white supremacy. And the way to undo that is to ensure that the truth and the power behind those words can be spoken. And the person whose story Nyla's is most proximately based and our work explains um, that we've used a pseudonym and some of the details have been changed, but it's somebody that I personally find to be very inspiring and powerful and fierce. And she can explain what that was like far better than I can ever imagine or dream to do. And that is why her words are present. And I think importantly, Nyla's story showcases that it wasn't just, she was not the only person impacted. Her daughter saw this happen. And her daughter is a black girl who is going to become a black woman. And that what was seen, that trauma, that abuse, the calling in of law enforcement is a lesson that our schools are teaching and it's not one that it should be. I can think of experiences and other situations where I had been at a school for a meeting and I have noticed a police presence and the caregiver and I are speaking. And what will come out in that conversation is that they attended that school and that law enforcement were invited to be present in case something happened. It is the potentiality of Black women and Black children and Black people and Black girls to always be an inevitable and dangerous threat. And without actually centering and uplifting the impact of that, we lose the ability to truly and truthfully speak about what is happening in our schools. I mean, we end our piece with her voice, right? I mean, we end our piece with her clarity that, and, and I'm going to read it, right? We need to grab a hold, not only of our children, but we need to grab and pull and pull and hold our system accountable to make sure our children are getting a proper education. We need to strive to become like a village. Without that, these parent, these kids and parents will feel like I felt that we failed our children because the system is set and because caregivers don't know their rights. Without unity in this village, we cannot help this system. And then when she thought about like what this meant for her daughter and her vision, it was, I want the best along with the better, so we must, right? I mean, there's just, it's not, we cannot avoid that. One, to Paige's point, but we also must ensure that we don't avoid that. We don't let academia, we don't let law as a primarily white institution, right, to ultimately then overshadow not just, you know, fierceness and power, but a clear sense of what's happening on the ground in a way that no one else can bring light to. There is no brilliance on an issue without having Nyla or others be able to speak that potential and that possibility, but also what it means to be in that moment. And if I can just add to that for a moment, Talia, and about what is the actual condition in that building? What are people living through, children, Black girls living through in those spaces? 
because that is another place where there is erasure. There is always a narrative about why dehumanization and abuse and denial and deprivation is normal or acceptable or anticipated. And that cannot be so. And we lose that if we aren't honest about what is actually happening. And so we must be, and we must be open to having tough conversations and appreciating and perceiving these truths, because it's more than one caregiver's story. This is a network of experiences and an entire tapestry of harm that we aren't able to reckon with and we need to be. Yeah, I think I think both of your comments really align with the principle within critical race studies that narrative is so important as a as a knowledge source and as an academic framework or just as a way of finding wisdom in Often a lot of people's narratives have been silenced or there's no archive or there's no record of it. So it's not seen as legitimate or seen as valid, but a lot of truth is present in the narrative. Um, and we have to center those narratives that have been silenced and censored for so long. So yeah, that these narratives are sources of knowledge that are very legitimate and should be centered in our work and any work that we do. So I also wanted to know what is important or what's central or special about the school context for understanding um, institutional manifestations of white supremacy. Why narrow on a school or what can a school teach us about the larger larger manifestations of white supremacy? So many things, <laughs> Nicole. I mean, I think first we have to, one, we can go historically, right? We can sort of think about the way in which education was either accessed or not accessed, that it was a tool of white supremacy to create exclusion and exclusion, right? The presumptions about the way you could even enter into the body politic in this thing called the United States as it was forming. I think then we can think about radical reconstruction and why education was so central within the passage of the 13th and 14th and 15th amendments during that time of what radical reconstruction was. Um, but even setting all of that aside, sort of setting aside the academic, setting aside the historical, you know, education and schools in particular is how we participate in knowledge practice and knowledge production, right? And so what we say and what we do in schools matters because it sets the framework for how we as individuals will engage both collectively and then individually. And so, you know, schools are a primacy of sight for not just anti-Blackness, but then starting to really interrogate within a larger framework of structural discrimination and all of the determinants um, that are then interlocking and serving to, to serve white dominance, right? Serve a sensibility of white supremacy. I mean, it's why we see in Florida, there was the passage of HB7, right? Because of a deep-seated fear around teaching critical race theory or even anything that was, quote, woke, right? To have anti-woke legislation centered around public education because there was a, a, a very clear sensibility that if we lose our schools, right, we as sort of white dominant society holding, grasping, grabbing onto white supremacy, that that might actually lead to the promise of radical reform, right? And so in the moment of all of what racial reckoning does or doesn't mean to the audience or more broadly, 
you know, there's a very clear articulated sensibility that education has to be held onto as a site of continuing to reinforce and reify what dominance looks like and who is or isn't in, included in that paradigm of dominance. And again, that's separate from then what we know, you know, from data that says, you know, you graduate from high school, you could live, you know, you live anywhere from 15 to 20 years longer, right? Graduation rate then is, you know, whether or not you have a, an increased risk factor for entering into our criminal legal system. So, you know, how education sits at this sort of central place to all the other ways in which racism manifests, but more importantly, your race in a racist society puts you at risk for not being able to flourish is essential. And we just, we can't then just only focus on the young people in those schools. We have to think about those young people as part of a larger community and that the ways in which education has been deployed to disrupt the possibility of flourishing for larger communities and in particular black communities. I, I gotta stop and Paige, please, because I will just keep going. <laughs> No, I really appreciate that you brought teaching truth into the discussion because we are at a moment where things are very critical that many states and school districts and school boards, Pennsylvania is not exempt from this at all, are trying to create policy mechanisms or legal mechanisms that require students to be taught information that is not true and is actively harmful. And we cannot disbelieve the truth. And I think that is another one of the reasons why story and storytelling is so important and the cultural significance of this and the ways that these types of harmful policies, practices and legislation arise. I think Talia, you did a wonderful job outlining sort of the impact in education. If I can just add some more to those laundry lists of upstream and downstream drivers, we can think of things like whether or not somebody earns a living wage, can they? Do they have access to physical and mental health care that is culturally competent? How close are they to environmental hazards? Are there resources in the community? Are there other things that people need access to for education reasons? Do you have opportunity? And also let us not forget that every school, that every state also has compulsory school law. And Pennsylvania, that is no later than age six until 18. And so schools are important because children are legally required to be there if they are not 18 and have not graduated or do not meet a narrow class of exemptions. And so what we're talking about here is situations where children are required to be in literally, physically, and oftentimes cases, but otherwise toxic environments and their caregivers are then needing to have interactions with these environments. And schools don't have to be this way. Schools can be wonderful, protective, affirming places where you are gaining knowledge, where you are learning skills, where your future is seen as something bright and possible and under your determination. And it doesn't have to be what it is. And so I'm not saying that the solution is don't create situations where children can be educated. That is not it. But when you are legally requiring people to be at a place and you are subjecting them to harm, as a result of that requirement, we need to interrogate that. And let us also not forget that education is very important because it is interwoven into these systems, right? Schools can call DHS on caregivers. They can call the police, as is explicitly mentioned in many of these parental exclusion 
letters and they made good on this. And so education isn't in a vacuum. It's something that's informing, you know, what happens to young people at schools comes into community and what happens in community comes into schools. And so I think Talia and I see this as a really necessary point for intervention. And Talia, I'm happy if you want to speak to that more. No, Paige, never ask an academic to keep talking about something <laughs> that she feels deeply passionate about. <laughs> or Nicole will never get us off it. No, I really, I really appreciate that. I think um I think there's such an emphasis in your work on community and on collaboration. Um, and you even encourage people who are reading the work to pursue a collaborative framework in any sort of educational justice work they're doing or advocacy they're doing. So in pursuit of that collaborative framework, are there particular stakeholders that you yourselves are speaking to? And are there stakeholders that have been historically and presently excluded that should be engaged as we look forward? Paige, maybe I'll take the first half of that question if you want to take the second. I mean, I think that we're explicitly talking to legacy organizations on the one hand, like the NAACP, right? I mean, the NAACP has had resolutions to eliminate racial disparities in school discipline for decades. I mean, if you, you can read their resolutions about unwavering opposition to school policies that lead to racial disparities in discipline and that they're adopted, you know, continuously over long periods of time. Well, why isn't school discipline, why isn't school policing and school punishment also inclusive of not just disparities relative to students, right? Like, why is there not a discussion about the educational outcomes as it and the flourishing um, of Black students and Black caregivers? You know, why isn't there a focus on stereotype threat or racial anxiety or unconscious racial bias, which isn't in those resolutions, right? So all of those things that exist in, say, the, and, and I'm just calling out NAACP, you can look across all the legacy orgs, look at the ACLU, right? They have a really robust campaign around ending school policing and divesting from school policing and investing in other forms of mental health services, of culturally affirming practices, of trauma-informed education, right? Or just dismantling what it means to live in a carceral state, but in a school, right? But none of that is being extended to think more broadly. And maybe that's because there's an absence of data collected, but going back to the NAACP resolution, it ends with a call for data collection. So it shouldn't be that it's Paige and other similarly situated education law attorneys, and then myself and other similarly situated education and justice-centered and critical race-centered academics to come together and say, can we figure this out? Can we uncover this, right? Uh, you know, this should be part of a larger and concerted effort to really think about what is it to dissolve the conditions and climate that we've been talking about this whole time. And that if we're really at the center of thinking about fighting racial inequality by building Black political, social, and economic power, then we have to think about Black, not just meaning one group of Black people here or one group of Black people here, or thinking about Black students or Black parents or Black caregivers, right? It's the totality of thriving, and we can use education then as that opportunity. So 
I think we're talking to legacy organizations. I think we're talking to on-the-ground community organizations who are advocating at a deep local level for students, right? What would it be to have their reach be more inclusive? I think we're talking to national campaigns like the Dignity in Schools campaign. What is it for parents and caregivers to also have dignity? in schools? What is it to have a clear sensibility that this is about the village, as Nyla reflects for us? This is about the totality. So we're talking to any and all. And I think we're also talking to organizations like Cadre in South Central Los Angeles that have focused on parents and caregivers within this narrow field of school discipline in the school to prison pipeline, and really centralize that and elevating their work right? And really saying, what is the possibility of this type of collaboration? What is the possibility of really having this as the moment if we are going to advance justice broadly, or even more narrowly education justice as it means to punish police and exclude? Because we can look at examples that are analogous on both sides, whether it be students or caregivers and parents, and our education rights organizations must engage with this. They must, and I don't wanna say care because I don't think it's a function of not caring. Again, I think it goes back to the, the way in which we narrowly tailor how we do our work, right? And how law has encouraged and facilitated that narrow tailoring um, so much to our detriment, because what would it mean to be powerfully together and cohesively working? Um, that's a real threat to white supremacy, right? That's a real threat to racial dominance. I agree. And I think one of the things that we must do is not be discouraged if there is a lack of data, because that is by design. White supremacy is very interested in preserving itself, making it impossible to challenge, prettying up the data, making excuses. And we're not here for any of that, right? I think that when we discuss what needs to happen, obviously caregivers and parents need to be included and we need to understand all the ways where things are happening, right? It cannot just be that a policy change happens, we're self-congratulatory, and it is over because there will be new manifestations. So if something isn't written, is it verbal? Or have they come up with a different policy? Have they rolled back important, notable, but not enough gains that have been made? I think all of these are conversations that need to be had, and they need to be had in the open. They need to be had in front of decision makers with power and they need to be had in ways where there are meaningful commitments that are beyond, we'll look into it, we'll do better for a short time. And there needs to be some accountability. So what is it that happens when a parental exclusion letter is issued? Who is looking at the situation that happened before? Who is providing guidance about how that situation could be addressed differently? Obviously, restorative practices are very important in creating communities where people have interactions with each other that are uplifting and are holistic and that are accountable. And we must seek to have these standards in the types of remedies that we're seeking to create. And those partnerships can't happen if we're missing people who are central. And I also think that as we work with different organizations, as we think about solutions, as we make demands of those in power, we must be unafraid. 
because this is something that is felt deeply and often invisibilized. And we must eliminate that invisibility. We must work towards moving things in a positive direction and also figure out why these conditions in schools are happening. Because as Talia mentioned earlier, we are pulling on one of the many threads of situations that should never be happening that are everyday realities for young people in school. And we have to have collaborations in order to fully and holistically and durably address those many different problems that create situations where children go to school and caregivers interact with schools in ways that guarantee that they experience anti-Black racism. Another theme I'm hearing from both of you is just thinking about things in the expanse, um, thinking about things holistically and thinking about the totality of thriving, as Professor Gonzalez said earlier. So, you know, as all of us in this conversation have multiple identities, all of us are Black women talking about the unique harms that Black girls face in school. Why is it important to use an intersectional framework to draw on Professor Crenshaw's work um, to describe the unique forms of school punishment that Black students face? Why is it important to think about the unique, the ways that this form, the realities of it, how it how it comes out uniquely for Black girls with multiple identities? I really appreciate your question. I think we need to discuss issues, all issues, parental exclusion letters included from a framework of intersectionality because we cannot actually meaningfully engage with why this is happening if we ignore that this is happening to caregivers who are Black women and the historical nature of that discrimination, the ways it has endured, the ways that it has changed, the ways that it has reinforced, the way that those lessons are ones that children are learning at school, that they're seeing caregivers experience, that they're experiencing themselves. And without that explicit focus, we aren't able to actually address what is going on at all. And I think that it is very important for us to also consider the other variables that could go into barriers, that could go into reasons why families need to engage with schools, why they are experiencing civil rights violations to begin with. If we take Nyla's story, there's the intersection here of sexual harassment and eligibility for special education services and toxic school climate. And all of those things play into the need to address each one of those ways that white supremacy and its manifestations, including anti-Black racism, play out at school. I mean, I think Professor Crenshaw's work has been so deeply influential and speaks to this story, you know, in terms of our work, but also what it is to have this continuity of time. And, and actually, I step back to think about Audre Lorde's work, right, where she said there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives. So this, you know, focusing on parental exclusion lovers letters and the deployment of that as a practice of exclusion must actually be about who's sitting at that crossroads, that intersection, right? And who's most often sitting at that intersection are Black women and Black caregivers. Um, and so to the extent intersectionality is that central demand because of the way that anti-Black racism is being not just deployed, but then manifests within the context of advocacy on behalf of a young person. So the, the risk, right, that Nyla faces is not 
single issue. It's not single identity. It's that constant intersection, right? It's that constant confluence. And it's more importantly, the compounding. Her blackness is not what's always front and center. It's her blackness. It's her womanness, right? It's the ways in which that her blackness and her womanness is being interpreted by the police, interpreted by the school. She cannot hide any of those identities in that moment. And intersectionality reminds us of that, right? That there is simply no way to move in the world having a single identity. Um, and so that we cannot be complicit or um, more importantly, satisfied with then the ways and the explanations that might be given that are about a single identity. Um, and school punishment, when we look just at the data and the data as quantitative is so lacking, I think, as we've emphasized here. But if we just look at the quantitative data, it is reflective of that intersectional framework. It is about Blackness and it is about womanness. It is about, and then even more so as Paige and I thought, it's about ableism, right? Um, it's about the ways that we think about reconstructing poverty and punishing poverty. So there's just no, it's inescapable, <laughs> right? So I guess in some ways, maybe that's my, my simple response is it's not that it's important, it's just inescapable. We simply cannot talk about school punishment. We simply cannot talk about school policing and school exclusion without being intersectional, um, or we'd be avoiding something so central and salient. Um, I'm thinking now about the audience of UCLA Law Review and the Dialectic Podcast, and this audience is mostly law students, legal scholars, professors, people who are already like in the ivory tower, it seems. But what do you hope this audience might take from your work um, or readers of your article might take from your work um, after listening to this conversation or after reading your article? What do you hope they might include or incorporate in their future advocacy as law students um, or in their current practice as lawyers? So I hope our piece is exactly what Paige said before when she was talking about Nella, is to be unafraid. You know, to be a law student in a primarily white institution, and I mean that both at the locus of the site of where you go to law school, but more importantly within law in and of itself, that is a primarily white institution. And it is not a safe place to be as broadly speaking a person of color, but then how and where your identity starts to intersect along these other lines. And so I, I hope our work is about being unafraid. I hope our work is about a willingness for us as quote experts to get out of the way, right? And the centrality of what that means and to mirror that um, as well. We didn't start our piece with anything but her vision and her story, right? And again, that was specific, that was critical because, you know, without that, there is no peace. So, you know, I think, I think it's those elements, but I do think we have a very strong interest in provoking a conversation and challenging a conversation in the domains in which we work in, right? What is it for education lawyers to start to consider this as a right place of advocacy, you know, really engaging and supporting parents and caregivers, really looking closely and carefully at that work 
Um, and then for organizations, again, you know, whether it's the you know ACLU, the NAACP, right, you know, Dignity of Schools campaign. Oh, I mean, we could go through the list of all the amazing organizations that are doing work in schools and fighting for an understanding of not just education equality, but education equity um, and trying to dismantle anti-racism still within a time of deep political re-entrenchment. Um, and real fears about what the future of publication education can and, and will look like, but to challenge them to say, what is it to have not just an intersectional framework? I think that's longstanding been a challenge to them and a provocation to them, but to just really say, we want to do more. We will be a village. We will not just advocate on behalf of young people or think that young people somehow exist in isolation from those that, that wrap their arms around them and love them. Um, and that we will acknowledge that there is a very real history of exclusion and punishment that doesn't just stop the minute that you turn 18 and that didn't exist before you were 18. And so that, that constant, as Paige was saying, you know, understanding that so often you know, Black caregivers and parents experience the exact same conditions, or if not the exact same, actually, in some instances, probably much harsher, much scarier, right, much more detrimental, much more traumatic, um, but all within this larger banner of safety, right? Social control mechanisms are nothing new to this country as deployed as a tool of anti-Blackness. And so how and where we're thoughtful about more voices and more bodies at the table I think that's really important. I too hope that our work is not, is something that is unafraid and is forward moving. I think some things I would like for people to take from the piece is that we must include caregivers in our analysis, or we truly cannot do the types of justice work that our students demand, that the conditions demand. I think Today is a particularly important day to be reporting the podcast. It is November 9th today. Um, and so we are in a moment that demands our attention. I think that as we think about what it means to be a lawyer, we know our profession is historically white by design, has persisted in being particularly Black people are absent. We need to contest that. I think showing up in these spaces for Talia and I is no accident. It's something intentional. It is something that is born from love and from hope. Like the conditions in the piece are alarming and scary and dehumanizing and intolerable. But we propose the first place to create one, the first place to include caregivers and many places where we need to do that in our advocacy because there is so much hope that can be had still. I think that that is something that I would like for folks to take away from this piece is that these conditions are not ones we want and the future can be different. I think we forget that. These types of violence are preventable. They do not have to happen. They are not inevitable. And as we think about what children need, what caregivers need, what our communities need, what we need, I think we need to be attentive, right? Every School has a code of conduct. Look at yours. 
Is it racist? Is it gender? Does it perpetuate intersectional violence? The answer is probably yes. Can you be punished for showing up in ways that express your gender identity? Can you be punished for ways that express your culture? Are you punished because of the body that you're in, how it looks at shape or size, how other people perceive it? These are all things that matter. And especially in educational institutions, like look at yours. I encourage people to challenge what's there, to speak truth to it. It is not designed by accident. It can be changed. We have the power to change it. And so I am hopeful that while being unafraid, people can also be ready for the challenge and ready to name the thing that is anti-Black racism, however it shows up every single time until it's different, because it can be different. I mean, we're in a time where we need to talk about access to education as not a single issue, right? It is a multi-dimensional issue. It, is a, it requires a multi-dimensional response, right? I mean, there's just, we, we are, I mean, I do, I do wanna be attentive to our current political landscape and time, right? Like we are in a, a really clear time of retrenchment um, and, you know, whether you agree or don't agree that there's been civil rights advances, right? We are sitting at a time of like unprecedented threat. Um, and education and how we choose to create access to education is so fundamental. And it isn't, and, and, and I think what's important is that neither Paige and I are saying, well, then that doesn't mean you do your other work, right? Like you don't abandon the other work that you are engaged in around questions of education or questions of the criminal legal context or questions of policing or questions of voting, right? But that when you as a person who has most likely gone through an educational context or you as a person who comes in contact with young people who are likely going through an educational context, you ask as Paige has provoked those questions, right? Um, and then you start to think about what are the possibilities and places that you can move into safely, right? Again, being attentive to what that might mean for you, given your identity um, in a predominantly white institution, you know, within a, a society that is gripping with white knuckles, and I'm using that term real specifically, with white knuckles onto supremacy and dominance and using education as that frontier you know, whether you think Florida is the harbinger or whether you think Florida is the case study, right, whatever language you use, you know, we collectively need to be attentive. Um, and that that just demands something different of us. And that demand is hard. That demand is fatiguing. That demand, in many instances, is frightening. But it doesn't mean that in whatever way we can enter into that, that we shouldn't. So every person that listens to this will be uniquely situated. And so then the call to them is to say within the domain that I am in, in the body that I'm, I am in, in this moment, what and how am I able to do this? Is it a conversation, right? Is it joining a project of, you know, that Paige and I would love to see of, of going through and coding every single code of conduct and every single student handbook across the country? If so, ping us. Um, but right, like what are these possibilities? Like what is this new way of thinking? Because the master's tools are not it, but the creativity 
around dismantling the house is it, right? Audrey Lord provokes us. Derek Bell makes us sometimes feel a little depressed about racial realism, <laughs> but all of it is what matters. So I, I hope that's what, what people take away. And maybe they also just find a, a solitude in saying, that was me too. I'm not alone. I now read something published by the UCLA Law Review with a story that looks like my own. And that matters because representation and voice and space matter. Yeah, I honestly, <laughs> I, I know I've been thanking you both throughout this conversation, but it is, it is really sincere. Thank you, because I do see my own story through the story of Nyla and you know, as Paige was talking earlier about codes of conduct being racialized and gendered, I just think about my own high school code of conduct that conduct that said no hoop earrings, no sweatshirts with a hoodie, that because that's gang affiliation, no distracting hairstyles, like having that. Like, and I'm just thinking about that now and how that was very racialized and gendered and very coded to make you assimilate into a certain aesthetic that maybe your culture doesn't align with. Um, and I was disciplined a lot for that, for wearing hoodies and for wearing different types of shoes or having my hair a certain way. So I really do see myself in this narrative. And it is really powerful to be speaking with you both today uh, and to and to have that representation be on this type of platform. So I do really appreciate that. Um, and just in conclusion, the last question I want to ask um, before we stop talking is, um, you know, Paige earlier was speaking about that the future can be different. It doesn't have to be this way. We can imagine different types of school climates where people's needs are met. People are can be their full authentic selves in the school environment. So what would that look like to both of you? What would a school environment where communities and caregivers are listened to and their needs are met look like? They would look very different than what we have now. They would be fully funded. They would have culturally responsive mental health support. They would teach things that are true, where you could see yourself in the curriculum and understand the accomplishments and the triumphs of your community. You wouldn't only show up in the context of slavery or abuse or ways you weren't succeeding. You would have educators and staff who can provide you with support and encouragement and guidance who look like you who provide you with true support, who affirm you authentically, who encourage you to think beyond yourself, who are in community with you. And I think that's what I think of. Um, but that's just me, right? The question is for our communities, what do those schools look like for you? What do they look like for your children? For young people, what do they look like for you? What needs to be different? We need to have these feedback loops to grow and change and promote something that people can feel a part of. And the question you asked about what we want has been just weighing on me deeply. So thank you for posing it. I think for me, it's join our community, figure out ways where this can be a place for you. Think through your own experience, take care of yourself in doing that. It can be hard, but these are things that we can play a voice in. And if it's not our voice that needs to be centered, can you offer space? Can you offer resources? Can you offer time and place? Can you be the person that can make the tough demand? Will you be the person who will not apologize when a decision maker says no the first time? How will you support the resilience in yourself and others? And I think sort of those are the questions I think of when I'm asked, how can things be different? Because for me, education has been transformative 
and revolutionary and also a place of deep harm. And it has also helped me become who I am. And others can have that experience without the trauma. And like, that's honestly what I'm looking for. I actually don't have anything to add. You know, Paige started us with what a vision is. She brought us to then reminding us that our vision may not be a shared vision. And so we have to be thoughtful and attentive to, you know, understanding what that is in a real constant and iterative way. And then what the possibilities are where it is transformative, where it is restorative, where it is reparative, all of the things that we know can and do exist when people flourish and more importantly, when black people flourish. So all we have to do is look around um, and see what all those examples are and then bring that into what is our public education system, right? I cannot emphasize that enough. It is a public education system. The co-optation of public education should not be acceptable to anyone. And so that too is the real demand is to take back ownership of public education. Again, in all the ways that Paige outlined from funding and beyond and just have a real sense of clarity. Thank you both so much again. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you. And I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy and appreciate listening to this as well. Thank you.